Nash Cats, 31. I'm Josh Tyson, body every man. He's Mark Brush, Gilded Insider. Together, we bring you this conversation about food and life and life and food. And speaking of life and food, we've got a guest today, renowned software engineer and designer, Alan Cooper. Alan Cooper invented Visual Basic once upon a time. And then he and his wife, Sue, started uh, the world's first interactive design agency called Cooper. It's a bi-coastal operation. But uh, what he really does is makes tools. And right now, he's probably making a tool in his barn, on his farm, called Monkey Ranch in Petaluma. Guy is pretty dialed in to what's going on in agriculture and food and life. And we're lucky to have this conversation with him. Uh, if you want to hear more about the design work he does, I also had a conversation with him for uh, In Conversation with UX Magazine, which is another podcast that I uh, use my voice and heart and mind to create. So let's go. So this first bit of recording we'll do will be for Natchcast, which is the the food podcast I do with Mark here, um, and then and then I'll send him away, and then you and I can talk a little bit about UX stuff if if you have time for that. Yes. Okay. Cool. Yeah, I got time here. Yeah. Wonderful. All right. So by way of an intro here for our for Natchcast listeners, we have Alan Cooper here. He is on his farm, the Monkey Farm. Monkey Ranch. Monkey Ranch. Yeah. In uh, West Petaluma. Do I have that right? Yeah. Ooh, Petaluma. The, Petaluma. The west side is the best side. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I think I know, I, I don't know, Petaluma is not very big, as I recall. Um, do you know a man named Douglas Gayton out there? Uh, no, I don't. But, okay. But I'll tell you, you know, Petaluma is uh, one of those uh, uh, strange attractor places Mm-hmm. It's just outside of the, you know, the economic influence of the San Francisco Bay Area, but not quite. And there's not enough groundwater. So it's just outside the economic sphere of the wine country in Napa Valley, but not quite. And um, so it's the place where the, the weird and wacky and wonderful people come to do weird and wacky and wonderful stuff. So, for example, in the last 25 years, there's been this revolution in baking. Guys have figured out that back in the day that, you know, when baking became industrialized, in order to have machinery work dough, they had to dry out the dough. And what they discovered is that if you work with wet dough, you get bread that's like, completely and utterly different and wonderful than factory bread. And, um, and it's, it's completely changed the baking business. And the guy who figured it out was an Australian who lived in Petaluma. Okay. The guy who invented robot combat has his laboratory downtown in an old hatchery building. Uh, okay, the guy who's making the 40-foot-tall giant industrial uh, sculptures on the San Francisco waterfront has his studio down by the river in Petaluma. The guy who makes the, um, uh, who makes the enormous wooden uh, altar, you know, that's like 100 feet in diameter, at, that they set up at, uh, on uh, Black Rock Desert for Burning, Ro- Burning Man that they burn at the end. He's, he lives in Petaluma. And so it's this, Petaluma is this place full of all these crazy artists and makers and creative people and, um, and farming. This is, is a kind of a, a center of uh, new agriculture. So when Alice Waters created um, uh, uh, Slow Food, Chez Panisse, Panisse, 
and yeah, the, the, the progenitor of the slow food movement, she came out to uh, a guy uh, whose name is escaping me right now, um, but he is the guy who started Green String Farms in Petaluma. And so all of her, um, all of her food was sourced from Petaluma. And so Petaluma is where it's happening. Well, I, I've been one time, and I it was to see this gentleman named Douglas Gayton. It might be right outside Petaluma, and he sort of has a he he's an uh, he was an early person at America Online, where I actually worked for a while. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And he moved to Petaluma, and he's got this sort of labor of love and this project called Lexicon of Sustainability, which is everything you just described. It's uh-huh. very art, very artistic, very creative, sustainable food. He has a little sort of a farm that is he has like some French chickens, as I recall, yeah. <laughs> that were roaming about. <clears throat> everything everything you just described was um, what I witnessed when I visited his farm. Well, it, it, it totally doesn't surprise me. I mean, the, where I live, I'm five miles outside of town, and my neighbors are kind of unreconstructed ranchers. They're all, you know, Fox News watching Republicans and 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 they they have a deer hunting culture and it's they're they're completely different than the milieu that I grew up in and worked professionally in for 30 some odd years. Um, but right interspersed with them is the kind of the new farming. See, because all the old ranchers and farmers, their business has all been destroyed by industrial farming and they they still raise cows and stuff but they do it just to keep their hand in they all have day jobs they're firemen and teachers and stuff like that um but uh but then uh, the guy across the street is this he's a white guy with with an afro with dreadlocks that go down to his waist who lives in a trailer with his wife and his two kids and he's got a goat farm and he's got 300 goats and uh, and he actually makes money. It, 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 there's there's just this this inversion and and the, and it's a culture clash. And and I'm kind of on the sidelines watching it. I'm I'm what I call an enabler. So one of the guys who's who lives on the ranch is a um, well, he's he's our shepherd. He raises sheep, but he's he basically he's a dirt farmer. I used to think that a dirt farmer was a was just a slang for a farmer who lived out in a dirty place. But I've learned that what you do. I mean, this is what the permaculture guys say: is they say you don't you don't plant if you want a tree, you don't go plant a tree. What you do is you create a place that would be conducive to having trees in it. And then some blue jay will fly in and, and plant an acorn there <laughs> and you'll get a tree, you, you know, cause that's what, that's what nature's constantly doing. It's constantly testing all the little niches. And so what this guy's doing is he's, is the sheep are a side effect of him nurturing the soil. So what he does is he does this high intensive grazing that uh, that um, uh, Joel Salatin invented in Virginia, and so he we have a small flock and it's only about fifty sheep, but every single morning, Aaron's out there and he moves their little uh, electric fence enclosure. So so they so they work on. Certain areas all day, so you kind of can move them around. Well, do intensive sheep grazing work. Yeah, but see, the, what happens is, is the thing that Joel Salatin did is he figured out um, he does what he calls biomimicry. The he figured out that I mean, if you go to the central plains of North America, when the when Lewis and Clark got there, they found the topsoil was you know thirty feet deep. Well, that was because of ruminants and grass, grass and ruminants. is these great herds of elk and buffalo um, and, you know, wild sheep and would, uh, would graze. And what they do is they come in in big herds to protect themselves from predators. And, uh, and, they, 
and they munch down the grass and then they shit in the piss all over it, fertilizing it. And, and then they move on and they do this as um, kind of self-defense and also to find new grass. But the thing is, is they, is they eat down the, uh, the perennial grasses along with the annual grasses. And the perennial grasses love to have their tops eaten down because then they put more energy into their roots and they come back really strong next year. The problem is, is, is Western grazing came in and put fences up. And, uh, and as soon as the fences were put up, what happens is, is the grazing that the grazers are kept in a single place. And so what they do is they go around and they eat the sweet grass and then they come back and they, they eat it again. And the sweet grass is the grass with the biggest roots, which is the perennials. So they eat the perennials down and they eat them down, 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 down. That kills them. The perennials love to be eaten down to the ground once every three, four, five years. But they hate to be eaten down every year. So, so what happens is, is Joel Salatin figured out that 30 cows spending one day on a half an acre is the equivalent of a million buffalo staying on, you know, a thousand acres for a week. And, and, and the thing is, is that, is that the, the natural pattern built the topsoil, is that the byproduct of this kind of um, uh, uh, ro giant rotational grazing is it builds up the soil. So what he's been doing is building up the soil on his farm. So Aaron came to us and he said, I'm going to do the same thing with sheep. It's a 20-year project. We said, okay. And the amazing thing is, is that after two years doing it, we've started to see changes in the flora on Monkey Ranch. And, it, and it's like a little science exper experiment because you could go up to our border fence where our neighbors on one side are doing traditional grazing with cows. On another side, there's some horsey people and they've got some horses. And you can just look, the horse, where the horses are, it's just dirt. Dirt and piles of horse shit. It just looks like ruined ground. And then you go over to where the cows are and you can see it's, it's struggling grass. And it's just annual grasses and they come up and they go down every year and, and the soil slowly depletes. And then you look at our property and you see uh, many different types of grasses coming up. They're starting to come up in different seasons and, um, and there's more variety. You're starting to see more and more perennial grasses and fewer and fewer annual grasses. And uh, it's amazing to see this happening in like real time. Have you heard of a gentleman named Alan Savory who gave sort of a yes. big TED talk about desertification? Yes. And, yeah. and Alan Savory is a very much um, had the same kind of revelations that uh, Joel Salatin did. And, and uh, so there's a guy around here who has come to Monkey Ranch and uh, he, he's the guy who figured out that I, I'm, I'm deep out of my uh, knowledge zone here. I know just a little bit uh, about what he's doing, but he figured out that uh, by spreading compost on the surface, you, um, you could kickstart a kind of a carbon sequestration cycle that according to his calculations can, um, can actually reverse global warming, you know, or something like that. I mean, people who know this stuff say he's not, he's not bullshitting, it's the real deal. And, uh, and he's, he's around here somewhere, you know, I mean, in, this, in the Petaluma area. What I like about what you're saying uh, is that it kind of, it's something, it's a theme that we return to on this podcast is that uh, nature seems to kind of have stuff figured out and people, we have this idea of what progress is and think we're, we're being progressive when we do all these different things like put up fences. But the more, it seems like the more we learn about how nature actually works, the more we see that the, the systems that are in place in nature are actually designed to make things run even more efficiently than we could have imagined and, and, on, a, and on a nice long timeline. 
yeah. so part of it seems to be like it's time to just kind of step out of the way, but obviously that requires balance because there's a lot of us and we're really in the way. Yeah. No, it's um, it's absolutely true, and and the thing that the thing that traps us is that we is is the time scale because we 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 know we understand that things happen on a geological scale a geological time scale it takes a million years to to wear down a uh, you know a mountain range and so because of that we we tend to think that that um that stuff doesn't happen in our lifetimes but it's it's this kind of discontinuous the nature of geological events are that they they happen overnight they just might be a, you know a thousand years in between the events and so we 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 see the same thing here is that okay well we've had the <clears throat> the western uh, pasture land um, reshaped for two two hundred years now and uh, and that's enough to radically change it and uh, so when I first came out here this is what what they told me some of these uh, some of these the, you know the new agriculturalists they they pointed to the the, the Marin County Hills that I grew up in. With this beautiful golden grass, and I go, well, I'm glad to see that this is back to the way it was when the when the the Native Americans were here, and they say, oh no, oh no, all of the plants that you're seeing are all exotics. There and these hills, the hills were covered with grass, you know, 300 years ago, but they were co covered with a different kind of grass. This is all annual grass because all the perennials have been driven away. And it, it's just, you go, wow, we, we did that in that short period of time. But there's hope in there too, right? Because we can, we can hopefully reset things a little bit with, with some of the things you're talking about. Well, what happens, it's interesting, is, <clears throat> I mean, the short answer to that is yes. The long answer is when you mess with the balance of an ecosystem, the ecosystem changes immediately. It responds immediately. And it never goes back. It'll, it'll return to a balance, but it will be a different balance. And you see, so, so what the, we, can, we can't hope that it will go back to uh, the balance that existed 300 years ago. Uh, where the where the where the the hills are dominated by perennial grasses uh, of a certain type, we can hope that it will go back to where the hills are dominated by perennials that will be of a different type. So I spent um, about five years as the editor in chief of a, a publication that all the CEOs in food and supplements would read, and 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 you know we witnessed this huge cultural movement toward natural and organic food, which we're living in right now. Yeah. Um, and, and it very much was driven by sort of this consumer hunger for ancient pastoral Garden of Eden before industry and chemicals and bad science mucked it all up. Mm -hmm. and, and, and what I very much thought, and, and I think we're kind of at that right now, I think a lot of that fervor has kind of peaked um, as you see, all these giant food companies eliminate artificial ingredients and buy nor natural organic brands. Um, but you can't really go back, right? You can't. Right. Wheat, wheat, the wheat now is not the wheat like it was. Yeah. And maybe it's causing gluten problems. Maybe it's not. But um, you, what you can hope for, I think, is what you just described, right? As some sort of new balance that is more in tune with we just got smarter. Even, even the Alan Savory dessert, as I understand it, um, that desertification approach to sort of uh, permaculture, what you do with your livestock, it's, it's you go back to sort of letting animals be animals, but you're also very methodical about where you put them on the land and you move them around in a certain way, right? Um, and so that's bringing some science and smarts into it, and uh, even as you go back in time and get ancient about it. More natural food science. Yeah. I do have, I do have that grand theory, which is... 
we're in, we're entering into a I think with this especially in San Francisco and this food tech boom and all the money going into plant based meats and all this sort of stuff. Um, we're we're just we're kind of the natural food movement said science is bad basically keep it out of my food and we're kind of I think we're going to bring it back in but instead of using all of that food science to make artificial red lake 30 for your <laughs> for your twizzlers you're going to use it to realize oh we can make mayonnaise with this plant instead of an egg and that will save the world you know um fingers crossed <laughs> yeah well yes i agree however i i have to say that i've kind of um i think there's a lot of uh a lot of misconception uh, that, let me put it this way. I, I was, I grew up in the suburbs and I'm, I never spent any time on the farm or with ranchers or, and so it, it was a real shock to the system to me when I came out here and I started learning this stuff and pretty much everything that I knew about food was wrong. And everything I knew about agriculture was wrong. And there's there are a lot of people who are at the forefront of the new food movement who simply don't understand stuff because they've accepted on the surface some assertions that sound right, but that aren't. And, and there are also assertions that have grown out of the... Um, out of the industrialization of food, and um, and and one of them is that vegetarianism is good and that meat is bad, and it turns out that if you industrialize the production of meat, you get bad meat, bad ecology, um, you torture animals, and um, and everything about it is bad, so. The conclusion that they draw is erroneous, which is that we shouldn't have animals. We shouldn't eat them. And it turns out that when you, and I think Savory was one of the guys who figured this out, when you take the animals off the land, it gets worse. You accelerate everything. And what, what is the right concept is is this notion of, of, of uh, ruminants and grass working together is the healthiest thing in the world. And in many ways, the healthiest thing that you can do for the earth and for the biosphere, for plants and for animals and for yourself is to eat meat. You, you just can't eat it in the quantities that Americans have been eating it. And you just can't grow it in an industrialized way. So look, so I've spent, you know, almost 40 years now in the software business. And the, the conclusion that I've come to is software is one of those things like a, it's a craft. And if you try to industrialize it, if you try and bring factory processes to software, what you get is you get incredibly crappy software and you destroy people's lives and everything just goes to crap. You, it's, it is not something that you can industrialize. You, you can't put in untrained people and have them each doing one little part the way you can in a factory. It, it doesn't lend itself to Taylorism and Fordism and, and, and uh, the goals of efficiency don't really apply in the software world. And I know that because I've lived in the world of software and it's just, it's just so obvious to me. And people try it all the time. The, the never-ending thing is, well, we're going we're gonna to come up with this new adventure. We've got these new methods that allow us to industrialize programming. And they all fall on their own dagger. They all fail. And so the exact same thing happens in the world of agriculture. Everybody says... Oh, look at this. I can, you know, have a bunch of chickens that lay eggs or a bunch of sheep. I can get meat and milk and, and wool from. If I could just ramp it up so I could have more of them and do this on an industrial scale, I could have more of the good stuff. You know, the good stuff will go up in a linear way and the bad stuff will go up in a linear way. 
And it doesn't. It just turns out that agriculture is just like software. It is not an industrial process and it cannot be scaled in an industrial way. And when you scale it up, the bad stuff starts to go up exponentially and the good stuff goes up linearly. So I, what, I mean, all the old dairy farmers out here in West Petaluma, this is old dairy country and they've all been driven out of the dairy business. The last dairyman just closed up this year um, out here in the uh, San Antonio Valley. And uh, there used to be 14 dairies here in this little pocket of a valley. And, um, and they've all been driven out of business by, um, uh, really by factory milk production in, uh, down in like Bakersfield and San Bernardino. Big milk. Big milk, exactly. And, but also they've been driven out of... Um, business by EPA, because the EPA tends to, as any government bureaucracy, goes after the soft targets. So all these little small-time guys who had 100 cows each, um, each one of them was individually shut down from surreptitiously sweeping cow shit into the local seasonal creeks, the, the watershed, okay, because the EPA says you can't do that. Well, you you know, that's, that's arguable. And these old dairy farmers around here will certainly argue it. Um, I don't know. But what's interesting is that, is that the factory uh, dairies down in the, in the Central Valley, in the south end of the Central Valley, are utterly laying, no pun intended, laying waste to the landscape. They're producing milk that is not healthy, they're torturing cows, they're destroying the landscape, they're creating these enormous cesspools of cattle waste that's just overflowing all of the natural ability to recover from, from waste in the environment. And, uh, but because they're big industrial uh, organizations, they can hire lawyers so they can fight off the EPA. Yeah, lawyers and lobbyists. Exactly. So it's really interesting is that is is the industrial farms can survive against the environmental protections. And the environmental protections, they, they can shut down the soft targets. So it's, it's a classic uh, complex systems problem in that the complex systems that we erect to protect our sources of food end up having the exact opposite effect of what we want. And what they do is they is they destroy the sources of our of of our good food and protect the sources that are destroying uh, the environment and giving us bad quality food. It's it's an it's it's this deep misunderstanding of of how things work. I've recently been been studying the work of of Dana Meadows, who's this the the, the world's for, was the world's foremost expert in complex systems. And she talks about leverage points and how you change complex systems. And she's, she, she points to this phenomenon all the time. She says, people understand the idea of leverage points is where do you intervene in the system to, to have the smallest input with the biggest output. And then they invariably get it asked backwards. So she figured out back in the 60s that the number one leverage on quality of life is, is growth. And so all these people said, oh, we get it. Let's grow and we'll have a good quality of life. And then she's left on the outside going, no, wait, you don't understand. Is What I mean is the more you grow, the worse it gets. And, and so it's the same kind of thing in the world of food production. And everybody wants to scale it up and make it industrial because then they can make money off of it. And I, I see it out here in microcosm. My neighbors, you know, they're trying to grow pastured eggs. And pastured eggs are so vastly superior to every other kind of egg. And, uh, and, what, and they, what they discover is that they can sell them in Whole Foods for $10 a dozen. And all of a sudden, they can make money off of, um, off of pastured eggs. 
whereas, whereas you know the egg business has been industrialized, and uh, and and they sell for two dollars a dozen in the in the shopping in the in the supermarket. Um, so the first thing they want to do once they get their pastured egg operation established is they want to scale it up. As soon as they scale it up. The government steps in and says, oh, you have to be washing those eggs. You have to refrigerate those eggs. We need EPA testing. We need this, that, and the other. And all of a sudden, they start they have to build an infrastructure to manage all that stuff. And as soon as they start scaling it up, there's more. They need marketing people, and they need, they need administration, and they need more money, and they start squeezing where it's softest. Where is it softest? At the pasture. So they start cutting back on the quality of the, of the animal husbandry. So the quality of life for the guy who owns the pastured egg company, the marketing corporation, goes up, and the quality of life for all the chickens goes down. The quality of life for all the farmers goes down. So it's really interesting. I mean, these guys came in two years ago and took over and now they're slowly the the individual farmers are who who made their business are being forced out one by one they're shutting down but the the pastured egg marketing company which is based in Texas finds that they have these wonderful brands that were created the hard way by hand by the local Petaluma farmers well they now own those brands what they're doing is they're trucking in eggs from Texas and selling them here at 10 bucks a dozen. Sensible. Yeah, except, except they no longer have the quality right. that they had. And so it's this, it's this cycle of industrialization ruins what it's supposed to nurture. Let me ask you this, because you're you're a, a designer, you're a problem solver, and uh, from talking to you before, I know that uh, primarily you, I think you th think of yourself as someone who creates tools yeah. that people can use to leverage other tools. You know, you uh, you created Visual Basic, which is a tool mm -hmm. in, in essence, and then as you moved into interaction design, you created personas, which are a way to kind of take your user research and create something useful that you can design around, and then you can also use to kind of explain your design decisions to stakeholders. So that's a very useful tool. Yeah. Um, so now you mentioned that you see your role out there in Petaluma as, as that of an enabler. And I know you're also, you have a, a barn there where you're literally making tools. <laughs> um, so how, how do you see, I mean, you, you obviously have great perspective on a lot of this and a wealth of knowledge and a lot of energy. So how, what, what do you see, what would you like to see happen and how would you like to be a part of it, I guess? Well, <laughs> well, uh, I mean, what we're doing is we're, um, when, we, when we first came out here, people would ask me, they'd say, what do you, I'd say, well, we bought a farm. And they'd say, oh, what are you growing? And uh, I said, 26-year-olds. <laughs> Be <laughs> because what we, what we are is we're enablers. There's all these 26-year-olds who, um, who have the religion of new agriculture. They understand that, that the good jobs are not office jobs. The good jobs are ones where your hands are dirty all the time. And they want to be out here in, on a farm growing things. It allows them to use their head and their hands and their heart. And, um, and they feel complete. And they also know that they're healing the deep wounds that we've inflicted on the planet. And, uh, and they feel that that is a, a larger purpose worth doing. The problem is, is that the land is owned and normal people want compensation for that land. And Sue and I are in this lucky position where we've made enough money in the software business that you know we bought this 50 acre farm and and we live on it but we're not really doing anything with the other you know 47 acres and and all these young people want is some dirt and kind of to be left alone 
And so that's the deal we've made with them. We've said, you can, you can come here and do what you want to do. And Aaron is one of the guys who, who came here and said, I really want to do this dirt farming experiment with this intensive grazing a la Alan Savory and Joel Salatin. And, uh, and uh, we said, okay, go for it. So there's a very modest kind of insignificant amount of money that changes hands between us sort of to, to keep it all above board. But we're, what he's doing is a labor of love. And what we're doing is we're enabling that labor of love. And so it's kind of a laboratory in a sense. It exactly is a laboratory because, because nobody really knows how to do it. I mean, Joel Salatin knows how to do it. He's been doing it for 25, 30 years, whatever. But he's in the, he's in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. Well, it's different everywhere you go. So how do you do it in Petaluma? Well, there are people who know more than others, but there's nobody who really knows how to do it. It's not like you can open a book and here it is. Because every little farm is, has its own microclimates and every little farm has its own soil chemistry and, and it's all different. And, uh, and, and the way, the way it, it's traditionally worked in farms is, is any given farmer is, uh, is educated by his predecessors, by his parents. And the, the parents tell their kid when they're, when they're just a toddler going out in the fields for the first time, well, this, the south end of this little you know, ravine here is always cold, which means you can grow this, but you can't grow that. Well, it takes years to learn that. And, and you, need, you need to have that accumulated wisdom from, from dad and grandpa and great-grandpa and great-great-great-grandpa and, and back in order to be able to have a productive farm. And, uh, you know, Wendell Berry calls it the unsettling of America. You know, the great American mythology of the Sooners and the settlers and the 40 acres and a mule of, of the westward expansion and, and uh, of the, the 1700s and the 1800s is uh, where, where we conquered the wilderness. And it was the, the United States was covered with small farms and, and, the, and, the, and the pioneers learned the wisdom of their land. Well, what's happened in the last 30, 40 years is the unsettling of America. Industrial farming has come in and aggregated all those farms and forced all those small farmers off the land. And now they're all running these huge factory monocultures where they're bringing, they're pumping in petroleum extracts to make the, to grow stuff and, uh, you know, GMO corn and all that stuff. And, um, it's utterly non-sustainable. It's utterly non-sustainable. And what's happening is on the fringes, there are these young, these 26-year-olds who are going back and trying to learn how to farm again. But what's interesting is there's been this break in the continuum. You know, grandpa farmed and he told his son and daughter, you know, get it. you want to get one of those good jobs in the city, so get an education. So they got an education, got a good job in the city, discovered that those jobs aren't so good. <laughs> and, and then the, the third generation wants to get back to the land. But grandpa's no longer out there running a plow and dad is a lawyer. And all that institutional agricultural knowledge that should have been handed down from accumulated generations is gone. There's a break. And so the twenty passed down like genetics. I mean Yeah, except it's not. except it's not. And so the twenty six year olds are going out with this huge uh, knowledge debt where they don't know what their grandpa was taught by their great grandpa because it was lost for a generation or two. And and they and so it's really hard for them to, to figure this stuff out. They have to invent it from scratch. Well, I like the point you made, too, about how scaling software and scaling agriculture 
you hit the same pitfalls. Um, do you do you find that when you're working with these 26 year olds that are there are there direct experiences that you that you've had designing software that are able to kind of inform uh, like the agriculture that you're seeing taking place on your property? Are there correlations for you? I see. I see failure. I see correlations and failure. So my neighbor, who I will, I will leave nameless, was a um, a young woman. Had a a family. Her and her husband had a uh, an insurance business, and they made some good money. And she read Joel Salatin's book. Uh, I think she read Michael Pollan's book where he's got a chapter in there about Joel Salatin and, uh, and got religion about, you know, changing the, the, the food ecosystem. And, uh, and she did what my wife and I did. She came out here and she bought a, she bought a much bigger farm than we have. And, uh, hers is, I don't know, like 300 acres. And, uh, and she announced that she was going to, revolutionized the food chain by doing all this uh, rotational grazing and everything was going to be organic and everything was going to be sustainable and they were going to do vegetables and they were going to do poultry and they were going to do uh, livestock cattle and pigs and and uh, and they just leapt into it and they created a, a, a non-profit educational arm and they were running classes and and uh, <clears throat> But it was really interesting, and it was and it was working. It was all working, except that uh, she wanted to change the world, and she was an insurance salesman, and her husband wanted, who was also an insurance salesman, kind of had the attitude of, "Well, this should pay for itself. We should be able to make money doing this," and. There, There's that growth coming in to mess everything up. What happened was her her she was an outspoken idealist. And her rhetoric attracted so many bright young people. Is all, all the 26-year-olds who've been here at Monkey Ranch all have done a stint at the at her ranch. Okay? And they all left her ranch because because there was this, when they come here, we don't say you have to make money doing this. We say you have to do the right thing, you know. And, but at this other ranch, they, what they discovered is that, that pigs are these magic animals that are, they're just wonderful animals. They're wonderful to have around and they're, they just play an important role in the cycle of food production and they're, they're great to have, and not only that, but you can sell them for lots of money. They're they're the they're the most valuable cash crop on any farm or ranch, okay. Um, and so they had these these brood sows, and they started raising piglets and raising them up to market weight and selling them and making money. And then they discovered the sad fact about pigs, which is they're absolutely hell on dirt. That all that nurturing that you do with the rotational grazing the pigs just destroy it is that pigs you know back in the day what you do with a pig you take one pig and you put it out temporarily in an acre and you leave it there for a couple weeks and it plows the ground better than a plow then you take it off that dirt and you, you go and you plant cabbage okay well what they did was they discovered that pigs are great so they took their two pigs and got 20 and then they ended up with 200 and then 250 pigs and it just destroyed an entire section of their farm because they tried to scale it up without understanding the full nature of what they were messing with. They don't know about the pig debt. Exactly, the pig debt. And so, so anyway, they have, after... I don't know, five or six years of running this farm with this, with this deeply conflicted desire to change the world and make money at the same time. 
it just exploded. Their marriage is in trouble and their farm is on the market and they decided to shut everything down. And then a, a, a white knight appeared on the horizon coming in and saying, oh, we want to take over the operation. So they just last month announced that the operations are being taken over by another organization. But I don't have any illusions about what this other organization is going to do is is they're going to piggyback on the reputation of, of uh, changing the earth and saving the world through alternative agriculture, but they're in it for the money. It's a lot of lip service. You can't, you can't make money at agriculture in a free market, especially in a free market where the giant agribusinesses, the corporations, are very heavily subsidized by the government. So if you grow corn in Iowa, you can get lots and lots of money from the government for doing that. Um, but if you're trying to grow uh, organic vegetables or organic you know, animals out here, sustainable agriculture, you, you not only don't get any help, you get a lot of of rocks thrown at your feet while you're doing it. And so you, you have two choices, you know, which is, which is you can work to change the world by showing people the value of better quality agriculture, or you can make money, but you can't do both. And, and you know, you look at like rice farmers in Japan, they're, um, the way they do it is very sustainable. It's also very heavily subsidized and protected by the Japanese government. And it's, what it is, is, is you have to look at agriculture the way you look at education. Is, is you don't want to make money off education. You're willing to invest the state's wealth in education because it makes your people better, which makes your society better, which includes making more money but you don't directly make it off of education and you can't directly make the money off agriculture. So it turns out that what, what you have to do is you have to subsidize the healthy agriculture, not the industrial agriculture. This is just, I mean, you say this to somebody in Washington, D.C., their head will explode because they say, well, why don't we help the people who are making lots of money? And the answer is because they're destroying the planet, you know, which do you want to do? Do you want to make money or do you want to destroy the planet? You, well, and you got the noise of the, you know, the lobbyists. Yeah. That the people who make lots of money are throwing at them. So, and, so pretty hard to cut through. There's, there's, um, let's see, let me see if I can get this right. Um, uh, there's this great saying that jet fighter pilots use. And it goes like this. Slow is smooth, and smooth is fast. Okay? Which means that, as a, as a jet fighter pilot, your life depends on your going fast. But if you try to go fast, what you do is you create lots of drag, and, and you're slopping your airplane around in the sky, and you're, you're wasting energy, and you end up going slow, and you end up getting dead. So, the way... To what you have to do is you have to go smooth, which means you have to slow down. But as soon as you're going smooth, you start going fast because you're very efficient of energy. And this is the essential conundrum is, is industrialization says, if you want to go fast, go fast. If you want to go big, go big. And it doesn't work. What you have to do is you have to go in the exact opposite direction. You have to go, you have to go slow. And when you go slow, things start to smooth out and get really good. And what do you know? You start moving faster. But the whole notion of industrialization goes counter to that. And it's, it's a, I mean, this brings us to the, um, uh, the essential uh, conflict in, in uh, design and software development today, you know, is what you what you have to do is 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 do the opposite of what you want. Uh, 
in order to get what you want. And it, it just, it so throws people. It's so counterintuitive. But if you can get yourself in that kind of Buddhist mind space, then uh, if you can occupy that space, then really great things can happen, right? Well, yeah, but... In theory. I mean, <laughs> I, that's the thing, is that, is that if you can get yourself into that mind space, then you don't want to do that. I mean, it's, it's, there's, this, there's this joke, you know, about the, about the, the you know, the, the executive who finds a guy sitting by the lake fishing, you know, and says, if you had more ambition, you could get a good job and you could, you know, make a lot of money. And, and instead of just being a lazy guy, you could, you could really build a career. And, and, the, and the fisherman looks at him and says, well, what do I get at the end of my career? And the guy says, well, then you can retire and you can sit by the river and fish. And it's, you know, we... I'm doing that now. We're, that's right. We're, we're really confused about what life is for. And that is a wrap. And not the kind you roll up and stuff in your mouth. Natchcast 31031. You just heard it. It was fun. Many, many, many thanks to Alan Cooper, our guest for the full hour. People of Petaluma are bringing it. They're bringing you that new ag in weird and wonderful ways. Good on you, kids. I just got back from Georgia, South Central Georgia, talking to you from my car at the airport at Denver International. Sore, full of various cabin germs, but I'm gonna overcome it. I've got my essential oils, I've got my worthless vitamins and minerals, and I've got a big heart. I'll be ready in a couple days when you hear us again. Natchcast 32, don't miss it.